Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Hey, this is Brian. The podcast going to start in a second. Um, I just want you to know we had a technical problem about 52 minutes into this interview. The studio crashed, and uh, it was a we were having a terrific conversation. And uh, Russell Peters, who's my guest today, and I were having this great combo. And then the studio crashed. We didn't know. We talked uh, for like another 15, 20 minutes uh, that we didn't get recorded. Russell was kind enough uh, about a week later to uh, call in, or I called him so we could connect on the phone, and we finished the interview then. And I think it ended up uh, giving me some time to think about stuff I wanted to ask him, which was a great follow-up questions. But you will notice that uh, around the 52-minute mark, things stop and reset on the phone. Thanks for listening. Hope you dig it. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback at uh, themomentbk at gmail.com. And... Uh, here, the real show's about to start. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today, uh, I have to say, it's Russell Peters. And I'm so excited that you're here, man. Thanks for doing this. I'm excited to be here with you, buddy. This is, um, as I was saying to you in the elevator, because we, uh, you know, I think a big reason for your show business success, I now understand, is uh, you show up on time or early. <laughs> Which set, sets you apart. <laughs> this is uh, this is great. Is that is that not normally I, a thing? I, I I I always try to get there on time or early, but what you know, traffic and I just I always get screwed over somehow by traffic or what have you. But today worked out really well. Oh, I'm glad because uh, I'm usually here first and I do the introduction beforehand. But I, I just will say that um, what I would have said in in introducing you is that. I shouldn't even have to say who you are. You are one of the most important, famous, successful comedians in the world. And I've listened to you interview places, and, and, and people say that, and they always say it with kind of like a, a wink or like a, hey, I'm about to tell you all, white people, something you don't know. There's this guy. Mm-hmm. And really, I'm telling you, white and black people, because the people that Russell's big to are these others. And, you know, you, know, you always want to say, these others, you mean, who dominate the planet Earth. <clears throat> Yeah, the the majority, the majority of people. Yeah, the uh, the uh, a- Asia basically. Uh, and I, but I think that all sells you short too, man, because um, you know you're just a hilariously funny person who tells stories. Uh, and if life went a different way, you would be just like all the cred and, and be like Brabiglia selling twenty five hundred seaters with, with all this respect. You right? Uh, you know, you tell great stories. You're really your wit is super sharp and um if people don't know your stuff they should go and watch and then come back and listen <laughs> to this um, well and, i appreciate that thank no, you it's true and, and in fact uh russell is playing uh you guys are gonna hear this tuesday so the friday before that russell will have headlined madison square garden yes tomorrow night thursday thursday night thursday are you gonna come uh, i'd love to come that'd this, be awesome do i have an invitation at 100 percent. i'm in there oh i'm there man yeah that's great. And I'm having an after party. 
I'm not sure I can hang with that anymore, but I'll come say hi. No, no, but it's, I don't know. You're, you're not that much older than me. I think you would like this after party. <laughs> okay, well, It's being hosted you. by Melly Mel. Really? Where are you doing Big Daddy that? Kane's performing. Wow. Nice and smooth. Large Professor, Lord Finesse, Brand Nubian. I remember Brand Nubian when they made their first record. Yeah. Uh, That's the only record we're letting him perform. My friend, Dante, <laughs> my friend Dante Ross uh, actually helped them make that record. What? Uh, where's this after party happening? At the DL downtown in uh, near the Delancey. That sounds great. Um, I would say what really sounds great is the concert, though. I'd love. To oh know. yeah, the concert's going to be. How great does too. it? Uh, how's it, <laughs> how's it feel to be playing Madison Square Garden? Uh, it's great. You know, I I did the uh, theater before. Yes. We sold out theater uh, theater out for two nights, which is one full garden. Up and didn't do it at the right time. Well, you're doing it now, and it, re- it reminds me of that great moment, uh, and I think it touches on certain things in, in your career, that great moment between Dane Cook uh, and Louie, I think, or, or an interview I heard Dane say where, where he, he was saying, um, you know, I don't know if he really said this, people say he said this, where it's, uh, I, would, I would talk to my peers, but my only peers are people who've sold out Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's a very select club, comedians who've, who've done this. Right. I think Dice was the first one. Yeah. I, did Steve, Steve Martin? Martin? I think Steve, Steve Martin, Martin. Yeah. So Steve Martin sold buildings like that for sure. Yeah. And so did Eddie. Yeah, absolutely, Eddie. Um, but, yes, Dice famously did it. And for like, sort what of, did he do, four nights in a row or something? That's what it was. And caught, the thing when Dice did it was it kind of caught people by surprise, right? Yeah. And I think that's I, – I sort of have that surprise element. Yet I don't have uh, the media paying any attention to it, so it's kind of, it's kind of hilarious that they kind of negate it. Like, eh, it's just, it's just, you know what it is? It's all the people in Queens, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not actually. Well, but, and and let, let me ask you this question, uh, which I was going to get into later, but since you you raise it, I watched an interview with you, and the the host said, you know, why do you think you're so famous? And your first answer, you know, why do you think you're so successful? The first thing you said was, well, I have dark skin. Mm-hmm. Putting yourself immediately instead of saying, and I was thinking about it, you know, if someone asked Louie that question or Chris Rock that question, they would, I don't think, ever go to that place as a way to, to almost um, defensively give that answer to, to somebody instead of just saying, why do you think, man? Because I'm funny. And I'm, and I'm wondering, what's at the heart of, of all that for you? Well, for me, I mean, you know, my success... I can't quite put my finger on it. I, I would say I'm definitely a product of of technology, uh, being that you know uh, my success exploded once YouTube started. And again, I had nothing to do with that. It wasn't like I put it out there, and you know it was all done uh, calculated. It was completely a fluke. I still, to this day, and funny enough, I haven't bitten my act right now about how I'm I'm not good on computers. And as an Indian guy to not be good on a computer, that's a black guy with no rhythm. It uh, doesn't make any yeah. sense. So I genuinely still to this day do not know how to upload anything. Instagram, yeah, because it's on my phone. There's, you know, share. Would you have felt – you'd be saying if, if, if you had done that in a calculating manner, you would somehow feel bad about it? Well, then I would feel like I sort of cheated. Do you know what I mean? But like Dane did that. Dane, Dane uh, yep. put his stuff on the internet. And Dane did it in a very clever way. He would he did it around the Bear Share and LimeWire days. So you would type in George Carlin, and he would put his bits and disguise them like and name them like famous other people's bits. But you would end up downloading his, then you'd hear his, and you would like it, and you'd be like, "Who is this guy?" And then he made you feel like you found something, which was very smart. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't have the longevity to keep it going. He got the arena tour, and then it was. Uh, but then they just, I think they just inundated him with movies and all these other things, and they just kind of saturated the market with them. And you can't get everything in one shot like that. It's not the way it should happen. And uh, and you know, sadly, he had the one arena tour, and I'm on my fourth. And I still have nobody throwing movies or TV at me. So I don't know if it's a blessing and a curse or what it is, but I'm not mad at it. Well, you're a little mad at it. No, I'm I'm uh, I'm you're not I'm mad puzzled at the, by it. the money and success, but yeah, I, I am puzzled by it. Well, I, to get know, mad at it, I would have to get mad specifically at something. I'm more puzzled by it in that. Really, what the f- do I got to do to make somebody go, hey, man, I like your stuff. Do you want to be in this project? Well, didn't you feel, I mean, you are, you know, I did, as, as I mentioned in the elevator, you know, you were in Chef this summer, an, an art house movie that was a great one that was really successful with incredibly credible people. I remember in the movie theater recognizing you, thinking it was awesome that you were in it, happy for you, because I, I was heard you talk about this before. Yeah. And, and I was like, like, oh, someone's like recognizing that Russell's like this super talented dude. But, uh, and I was looking around the theater to see who would notice and i did catch that there were people noticing who thought it was cool also but what's your this to unpack this there's a few different things i mean because you you know even in talking about dane in that way uh, after i kind of compared you to him because you guys had sold out the garden on the one hand i know you feel like not recognized for sort of exactly the contributions that you've made exactly the, the the sort of the following that you have um but on the other hand you you do know that you've done this. Oh yeah, I mean, I, that, I mean, I, I there's two ways of looking at it, I, and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm guilty of of not practicing what I preach, and I always tell people, you know, you should focus on what you have, and not what you don't have, and uh, and sometimes I can get caught up in focusing on what I don't have, but when you really think about it. Was I ever supposed to really be in this situation? Well, that's what gets back to the YouTube thing and this, this sense of, you know, I wonder if, if these events happen. You know, your act talks about your father all the time, and, mm-hmm. and we can talk more about the way you draw him in your in your act, the way you draw him in, in your stories right. about him. Right, right. He passes away. Right. Right as somebody uploads this thing and you you have this gigantic explosion and go from being a working, successful club comedian yeah and by, by successful i mean by canadian standards meaning i would make like 1500 to 2000 dollars a weekend which you know is, is great money if you're doing it every week but then there's some weekends where you're making 200 bucks yeah you know i know I mean? look the guys who and we all know the guys who play the cellar uh with the you know most important comedy club in new york city i would say one of the most important comedy clubs in america yeah sure i'd, I'd agree to it uh we can go further take like the most important but you know you know they're getting 75 bucks a set not there. even that depends on who it is. Some guys are grandfathered in at 75. You know what I mean? Uh, I know. I'm just happy to get my free beverages. <laughs> That's yeah. really well, all. Let's be honest. You're happy when Esty just notices you. Yeah, well, Esty's always nice to me when I'm there. But well, I think somebody has to elbow her and say it's me. But uh. but, but you you went, from, you went from from that thing to having this, you know, I mean, in, enormous rise. And unlike an overnight success, you know, people... People sort of understand when an overnight success, a true overnight success, uh, becomes off balance as a result of it, right? Yeah. Because they were no nothing. They make one record, and they're stars for a minute, and it's jarring. Yeah. Uh, but but I think what people don't consider is someone who was um, the equivalent of like a journeyman professional athlete, doing yeah. it, have made it to the big leagues. Yeah. You know, you're 
playing clubs, getting paid. Yeah. It's but, the equivalent of Buster Douglas, right? I love that reference. Uh, and, but but I but instead of losing my title in my first defense, I kept the title. Right. It's Rocky. No, it's not yeah. Buster Douglas. It's actually like Rocky. It right. Is it's like Rocky. Yeah. It's but and if you recall in Rocky too, Rocky's very you know is when he finally wins it, but he's very uncomfortable with his status. Uh, I, I remember when I first made my first million, I was very uncomfortable. Right. What was it? What? Because I think it ties directly into. This sense I get from watching you talk that uh, that you're holding on to this outsider status and you're holding on to all sorts of stuff that's not allowing you to like really suck the joy out of this incredibly joyous existence. To a certain degree, yes. I mean, being an outsider is a great place to be, especially for a comic. And the further outside you are, the more perspective you have. Once you're on the inside, your perspective's gone. And, uh, and yeah, I'm an outsider, but I'm still sort of an insider. And, uh, and I kind of dig that I'm in, in this limbo kind of space. But at the same time, I want to know what the inside's like. I have an idea of what the inside's like. I have friends on the inside. And, uh, and you know, it's cool to know these people. But then when, you, when, when you're in there and you think, wow, I, I probably should be in this now, right? And then you, then you wake up and it's gone. You're still on the outside. And you're like, well, as opposed to making me angry or, uh, or upset, it really just motivates me to continue proving my point on the outside. Yeah. Well, when you say that it, it motivates you, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you angry. Is it really true? That it it's fuel. It's yes. fuel. I, okay, great. I use that word all the time. I, mm-hmm. I because like the whole premise of this show is that people who accomplish remarkable things process the really high and really low moments differently, and they use them for fuel. Absolutely. In a way that most of us don't use them for yeah. fuel. I don't get down from it. I just get more scheming in my head. Like, all right. So wait, you're not going to give me this opportunity, but I know that one day you will give me this opportunity. Because I'm going to force you to give me this opportunity. I'm going to do so many things on the outside that you have no choice but to give me this opportunity. And when you give me this opportunity, I'm not only going to do it better than you thought I could do. I'm going to knock it out the park. Well, um, uh, in the in the moments, like in the in the months before that special was uploaded to YouTube. And I know you didn't do it. No, mm-hmm. I actually think if you had done it, that's fine. That's the way the world works now. People do their work. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the thousands and thousands of comics who do upload now, their work. Now it's almost, it, it's par for the course, uh, you know? They upload their work, though, and nothing. You uh, have guys that have been on stage literally three times. I'll have kids hit me up on like Instagram or Twitter, and they're like, hey, man, check out my set. It's my fourth time on stage. And I'm like, it's on YouTube. I go, why is your set on? Why would you? I, why would you do that? Oh, I had a great set. Stop patting yourself on the back. Don't pat yourself on the back ever. Yeah, it's like that Lewis Black story he tells. I can't remember who the older <clears> comic <throat> was, but some older comic, Lewis had been doing it for a little while. I don't know, Lewis. I heard this on a podcast. He'd been doing it for a little while, and some older comic came up to him and said, and Lewis had, had a good, felt he had a good set, and said, like, how many minutes do you have? And he said, 30, and the older comic said, two. You know, yeah. you probably have two minutes is yeah. what you really have. But what I was going to say is, in the months before that, what was the story you were telling yourself about your career, your talent, where you were, what this life was 
going to be like? Because you'd been at it for how long? Uh, when when it got uploaded, 15 years. You had been. This is really important because a lot of artists listen to this show and also a lot of people mid-career. I get letters from people, I'm a lawyer, I'm 36. Yeah, you're I not a lawyer yet, dream, really. But, yeah. no, but they're like, I have a dream that I can do uh, any number of, of things. You're 15 years into a career as a comedian. Mm-hmm. Did you at that time were you were you were you content with that in a way? I very much was. I was very content with where I was, and I had no delusions of grandeur at all. Like the the life I live now isn't even a life that I had said one day. It was it was it's not it's unfathomable the the life I live right now. Like the things I'm able to do are just they're absolutely ridiculous. And I and I understand that still because you got to understand I was poor for a lot longer than I've had money for, so sometimes I, I will do very extravagant things, which make no sense, and then sometimes I'll get cheap at the wrong time, like say this bottle of water was five dollars, I'd be like, F- you, I'm not paying five dollars for, it. I'm going to the dollar store and I'm going to buy a case of it for two bucks. Right, but then if you felt like you wanted to throw a party and rent out a big room, yeah, then then like I'm going to go to dinner tonight with the whole crew, and it'll probably cost me around fifty six hundred bucks tonight for dinner. But and, you, and that won't, you'll just happily write that. I will happen because everybody enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? You can't put a price on enjoyment sometimes. Right, but wait, you're, I want to go back to this thing because you're you're there. You're a working comic. You had you would you come down here and work? Yeah, to the city. Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, Ninety six, I used to sleep on Patrice O'Neill yeah. and uh, Keith Robinson's couch in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Right, and um, and those two were very instrumental to me because they really gave me straight talk back then. Keith helped so many people. He really Keith did. Really, I mean, I said <laughs> Big Jake always talks about how Keith yeah. helped him too. Yeah, Keith is like uh, everybody's muse, and if if only it would just come back. It, it's got to come back to him at some point. You can't do that much good to people. Have you taken him out on the road with you? I have. I've taken him out with me. He's so funny, too. And, like, you know, everybody has a Keith Robinson impression. All right, jackass, no, shut up. You're going to take it, stupid. Listen to me. Listen to me, stupid, with your horse <laughs> i got to get him on here, actually. But uh, <clears throat> He's amazing. No, he's hilarious. Um, And he's old as That He's going to love that, too. Hey, Keith, if you're listening, you Keith, are. That's, you know you're old as That's he's... Russell Peters. You can put that on. You know what? You can use that as a blurb. Hey, I'm going to tell you this, Brian. Uh, uh, um. He's at least four or five years older than you. Wow, that's really old. You're right, he's really old. So, no, but uh, you would come to, to New York or to L.A. sometimes and do your thing. I would just come to New York because I was in Toronto. Right. And uh, the only reason I got on stage was because of Keith and, and Patrice. And were you killing back no. then? No. You were just getting over? I was very – I'm one of these people who takes a while to get comfortable. I don't want to be those people who just – show up and, and seems too comfortable uh, undeservedly. It's a, That's probably a Canadian trait. I was going to, yeah. You mean on stage you don't want to seem... Yeah, overconfident seem... or cocky because even I wasn't sure that my jokes were good enough. E- even after all those years of doing yep. it. Was your jokes... Now I'm at 25 years in and I accept who I am. I accept where I am and I can get on stage and be like, I don't really care what you think you like. This is what I do. Well, also, you can probably tell yourself you have an obligation to those people to do that. Well, They've all, like, <clears throat> plan their day and their week around coming Yeah, no, no. When you. I do my show, I'm good. But when I drop into the cellar or wherever, I would always be a little intimidated by it because I'm like, well, they're going to hear 
uh, excuse me, they're going to hear Atel, they're going to hear Louie, possibly hear Rock. I mean, these guys are are brilliant minds, and I'm just me. You don't you don't put yourself in there. No, I, I listen to the stuff they say, and I'm like, wow. There's something far more prolific about those guys. But you know, you don't you don't think though that the way in which you are able to because look, part of to me what happened. It's easy to write off. Well, Russell, you know, did these uh, routines, and so even he heard you say it. You know, so people from all sorts of cultures who have felt left out at least said, "Well, this guy is close to being one of us." Mm-hmm. But don't you think it's it's partially that you went deep in for in excavating? What it meant to be from this other culture, and how we, how both as someone of Indian descent, but also as a Canadian, how we all looked to you, not just how we looked at you, but mm-hmm. how how we looked, and you, uh, you kind of presented it in at first like a non-threatening but very sharp way. Uh, I don't know how conscious you were of that stuff. I, I I'm not that conscious of it. I, I think it's just who I am. And I think that's probably why I'm able to get by and say the things I say about people because there's no intent involved. It's just this is what I think. And what I and I don't say what I think is right or what I think is wrong. I just say this, this is what I've seen and this is how I uh, processed it. How do you feel about it? And then people are, you know, 99% of the time people are just happy that I noticed. And And they must also... Be grateful, I imagine. See, I, it's too it's too reductive to think that it's just because you're giving it a voice. It's that you're giving it a voice because when you say those people are doing something I don't do, <clears throat> I mean, uh, other outsider culture comedians, you know, there have certainly been comedians of Latin descent. There have been other comedians of Indian descent. But you would tell these stories about your family, about your being the way in which you were bullied on the outside. Mm-hmm about how then you would come home to a different kind of fear-based bullying in yeah. a way, uh, in a way that um, all of us can kind of like understand and, and relate to. And I'm, I'm, Were you telling these stories when you were in the clubs before the explosion happened? Yeah, I was, you know, it was done more in a cartoonish way. And I think as, you know, again, as you get older and you, you can't be that kid anymore. You have to, I have a child now, you know, I'm a father and I, I, you subconsciously have to set an example. I mean, so much stuff, is, you talk about being a father, so much stuff is implied in your, in your act. You know, you, you've, I mean, I don't know if it's your single most famous routine, but you know, I, I think it was the third thing I ever saw of you was, you know, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's yep. going to get hurt. And, uh, I was thinking about that in, in relation to, you know, um, the cultural difference in how we discipline our our children, uh, and now it's a ge- now it's a generational. It's not even cultural anymore. But when you tell the stories, it's both. Well, I think it's both. Yeah. I was talking to the the rapper Killer Mike the other day. He was a friend of mine. <laughs> Do you know, he's there's, incredible there's, from Run the Jewels. There, there, there's a name I would never have expected. You know who's with me? Uh, Bumpy Knuckles. That's Bumpy Knuckles. That's Bumpy Knuckles. Uh, Freddie Fox. Yeah. yeah, we said hi downstairs. But um but no, but I was talking to Killer Mike the other day and he was really con- certain that uh it is still a cultural difference and he was talking about the fact that he felt like his dad uh grandmother would hit him 
mm-hmm. because they were tr- really trying to save his life. And that, that what white kids could never understand is the the fear of being in a culture that if if you as a parent uh, don't do that to your kid, they're going to do worse to your kid. And in, yeah. when you talk about your dad and your mother and your dad, mm-hmm. uh, you do get this sense of people trying to survive in this world that's, that's not really theirs and doing it the best way they can. You don't seem angry about the way you were treated. No, see, it was never, again, it was about intent. They weren't doing it to to hurt me. They were doing it to knock some sense into me. And when you really rewind back and think about what you were doing and what you were saying, you, know, you probably did deserve a smack in the mouth, you know? Well, But, but you, had, you had ADD, right? I still do. And me too. Like I grew up, and and so part. And of, back in the day, there was no diagnosis. They didn't for know. It. No, no, they didn't know. Uh, and so I know the way that that can manifest. So when you mm-hmm. say, you know, oh, they were trying to knock some sense into the things I did. I mean, does that sort of fundamental misunderstanding of what was causing some of that, or that disconnect between you knowing you were, like, obviously you're a very bright person, but th- that disconnect between knowing you were bright, knowing that you understood certain things that nobody else could in conversation. Yes. And then your inability to manifest that stuff scholastically or res- being responsible the way other kids were. Yeah. Did it torture you? And then did it, did then were you, the fact that you couldn't explain it to your parents the right way, did it drive I, you crazy? I, I would envy people that were good in school, that just were able to focus in class, go home, do their homework, and have it done and get good marks. I, I envied that because I was like, what is that? How do they do that? And I never knew there was something wrong with me. I, I just assumed something was wrong with me, that I was like, I can't do that. I don't understand how they can go home and they're not in school and they still want to do work. I don't, I'm not motivated to want to do this. What, were you motiv- what did you want to do? I just want to be happy. I, and doing work never made me happy. What did, though? I'm being around people, being around people and making my, hanging out with my friends and just doing dumb you know, I, I boxed for nine years and, and going to the gym made me happy because in the gym I was kind of a somebody, you know. I wasn't the best guy, best fighter in the gym, but I was the sharpest, I was the smartest guy in the, in the gym. So right. I liked that feeling. So you were able to, to were you able to sort of uh, figure out at a certain point, okay, these people know how to do the school thing. I don't, but I'm not going to let that uh, lower my self-image. Or did you, was your, did your self-image take a... Uh, a hit at a certain time. No, because then I got I got kicked out of regular high school and sent to a, a vocational school. Right. Where, so what did you What did you think that happened? Well, I just I, it's funny because I remember they thought I was stupid. They thought I was slow, and yeah. I was like, "Well, I know I'm not, but the fact that you think I am makes me wonder how smart you are. The fact that you can't yeah. your job is to figure out what's wrong with these kids." And you couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, so you just moved me, shoved me off to the next school. I went to the next school, and that school really paid attention to their kids because these are kids with behavioral problems and and handicaps and stuff. So uh, when I got to that school, it had a reputation for being a badass school, and that's when I started boxing because I was like, I'm not going to get beat up in this school. Were you also able to just be uh, funny in those environments? Yeah, they just let me be me. There, there was no punishment for being yourself. In you that mean school. at that school? At that school. And so you felt you really you fit in at that. Yeah, school. and you know, and and there was some real badass kids. Like there's a lot of murderers came out of my school, like in cats I, I grew up with. So, but they, but they, I understood them for some reason. Do they write you from jail? No, but when they got out, they would always come and look for me because they saw me on TV when they were in jail. Really? And I'm like, oh my god, Wait, I'd what get would a call. You do? Yeah, when they would show up at a gig, would you say hi? 
Yeah, they were like, uh, no, I'd get a phone call. I'm like, hey, man, I'm out. And I'm like, how'd you get my number? I, oh, I saw so-and-so at the barbershop and gave me your number. I go, that motherfucker, what are you doing? That guy killed his father. He literally killed his father and got out of jail because he pleaded crazy. Right, and you're giving him my number. If he'd killed his dad. Yeah. Hey, killed his father and then beat his father to death with a baseball bat. Then propped him up on a chair and sat beside him and put on the TV. That's a crazy person. I don't want that guy back. Right. But so now was this the group of guys you talk about that you hung out with as a kid? You know, you always say you hung out with mostly Caribbean and black kids. Yeah. Uh, are you? Do you still know any of those kids? Are you still? I know. Any uh, of them? Like, yeah, most of them. I still see a lot of guys when I go back to Toronto. And were you when when you were living those years? What was your life like when you were you know? In, like I said, in the months before, you're getting paid fifteen hundred bucks. Some weekends, some weekends you get those are good weekends, right? Some weekends you get two hundred bucks. Are you living in like uh, a one bedroom apartment in Toronto? No, uh, my dad always instilled it in us. You don't rent. We don't rent. Right. So, like that's not what we do. You're not paying somebody else's mortgage. So he we I lived at home till I was thirty. My brother was thirty six, and I own the only reason I moved out was because when I was 29, I was dating this girl. Here's what you have to understand. Since I was 18, girls were able to sleep over at my house and in my room with me with the door closed. And that was not a problem. How did you clear that with everybody? I don't know. It just happened. I lived in the basement. My brother and I lived in the basement of the house. And uh, I would just tell my dad, yeah, uh, so-and-so, she's sleeping over. So the okay. once or twice a year, you could you could get them over. <laughs> yeah, right? At the time, I had a girlfriend, oh, so they would, yeah, yeah. they would let them sleep over, sure. whatever. But I, I was 29. I had this girlfriend at the time. And she was tired one day, and she goes, can I go to your room and take a nap? And I said, yeah, go ahead. And then I said, I'll take a nap too. Uh, we weren't We were just like having a nap. And then I came down, and my, my parents go, uh, we don't like it when girls come over and, and your door's closed. And I'm like, what? It had been 11 years of being able to yeah. do that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? No, this is not in, not in our house. And I'm like. But they've been staying over since I was 18. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, it's our house. It's our rules. And that's that's the way it is. No no more girls allowed up in your room. And I go, I'm 29 years old. Well, if you don't like it, you can move out. And I'm like, why would you change the rules in the middle of the game? And I'm like, and, and the only reason I'm living here is because I'm paying your mortgage. Well, pay your own mortgage. Oh, so you were at that time. I was paying rent. It's not like I was living there for free. You were paying rent to your parents. Yeah. Uh, from the money you'd made doing stand-up. Yeah. Still living at home. Yeah, and then I said to my brother, uh, I'm going to move. I, I I need to get out of here. And he was like, all right, let's go. Let's buy a house together. Did you have like a manager and an agent back then who believed in you? No. I had uh, nobody. Right. So the the YouTube, the special gets uploaded. And how does it hit you that something amazing is starting to happen? Well, you got to understand when... Uh, in 2003, when I shot that special, I was broke, like the most broke a human being can be. Like literally, I had no money in the bank and I was in debt. And uh, and they gave me a check for $7,500 for that special. And I just signed the back of the check and gave it away. Who gave you the check? The people who like produced that show. People And, and they just said, hey, we, we think you're funny. We want to. No, they'd it. done a special with me in uh, 1997. And uh, it was a series they did called Comedy Now. And in '97, they paid me ten grand. Oh, that's great! So you'd gone down twenty five grand in value. Yeah, to that. that's the thing. I was like, you know, 2003, you're worth you're worth twenty five hundred bucks less. And where do you do that? Where did you do that special? We shot that in Toronto at the Masonic Temple. So you do that special. You're in debt. They own the freaking thing. They, they own it outright. Right. They just they and they screwed me. But do they then have you 
uh, beyond that? Or they only had you for that? They only had me for that. 7500 bucks. Right. I think you could look at it differently. Maybe they didn't screw you. Well, no, I remember. If, I'll go to it later. I'll tell you why why they screwed me. But it wasn't uh, – it was because I was trying to uh, – I wanted to release it as a DVD. And I tried to buy the rights for it. And I offered them a hundred grand. Yeah. And I said, I'd like to buy it. And I'll give you a piece of the sales. Um, because I would like to add a commentary to it. You want to do a bunch of stuff, make it special for your audience. Yeah. And they were like, no, we are going to release it as a DVD. And we will give you 0.5% of the sales. And you have to go and promo it. And they sent me this contract. It was like uh, economy flights, uh, three-star hotels. I'm like, oh, my God. Have you heard of this uh, term called go f*** yourself? <laughs> and uh, I said, I will not do any promo for this. I will not help you on this on any level. And they released it and they did the sh- cover you've ever seen. And they put... The special did in 97, and they put this one on it. And I never saw one penny from it. Not to get all Tony Robbins on you, who I love. Right. But, uh, but there, isn't there another way to look at it? Well, no. Then, yeah, I have to look at it the other way. I'm saying there's another way to look no, at it. No, but I just is, look at it as it like – the cost of you – yeah, they maybe took advantage of a situation. Yeah, but I'm like, you but know – they can't harm you anymore. Yeah. Like they, they can't cause you harm. Yeah, no. My, they, only, my only beef was that I was like, wait. Sure. I offered – it's not like I just said give it to me. I offered you money and a percentage. Yes. And I was going to do the right thing. Oh, yeah. No, I, I understand. And I was I would, just like, wow, you're shit. I would feel the same way. My initial instinct would be to feel the same way. But I'm, uh, what, I'm, what I'm interested in is, uh, is that out of that special, all that, that, that was a result of your work, your, mm-hmm. your comedy, this entire incredible career happened. And you yes. kind of like flip the meaning of that, like how sh- you could actually look at it like they're so short term thinking mm-hmm. that if they there was probably a way those people could have played a series of events that would have made you actually love them, feel loyal to them. Yeah. And perhaps they could have done business with you for a very long. A- absolutely. Time. That's that's exactly how I looked at it. I was like, you know, this was a goodwill gesture. Like, you know, maybe you do the right thing here. We do something else again. This way you learned very quickly that these people weren't the right people to be around. You were able yep. to go build a better thing for yourself. Absolutely. Because Russell Peters should be happy. Yeah. Russell Peters shouldn't have any, what I would say is like atavistic anger, anger that is not useful anymore. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. My problem was just that I, uh, I was just so shocked by them because they were so nice to me in 97. And then when they came back in 2003, they were nice again. And I'm like – and I had a great relationship with them in that, in those uh, six yeah. years. So I was like more like, really? This is right. the now way you're, you're going to be? Sure, sure. That I understand that. But you, so the, the – the, the, I was more disappointed. That makes sense. Yeah. No, I can understand you being disappointed, but it's, it's also like uh, when – it's also has to do with like uh, uh, this idea that I think is in so much of your stuff and in so much of what you talk about. Um, even when you talk about the the club, you you know, can you be on the inside? It's like uh, there there's some there's it, it's almost like tied into this need for a, approval from an invisible. Uh, an invisible body that can never really grant you what only you can grant yourself. Well, it's like, it's, it's, uh, you know, you boil it right down to it's like uh, believing in God. Do you know what I mean? You're you're not taking responsibility for your own actions if you're blaming it on an invisible person. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you're entirely in control of how accepted you I feel. I agree. You're sold out Madison Square Garden tomorrow night. <laughs> you're an accepted, you're accepted. Uh, 
And whether the the because for, for people who are you know you're Canadian of Indian descent, ADHD, special school, it's kind of no wonder that you had this Im, Im, imaginary cool group to which you wanted to belong. I agree, but here's the problem. I think if you really want to boil it down, it stems to growing up in Canada as a minority and specifically being an Indian kid. There was a lot of racism. Yeah, I dealt with. And I think that really wears on you at a young age when everywhere you go, people not just say mean things to you or do mean things to you, but you could see it in their face. Like when you'd walk in somewhere, you'd see it in a white person's eyes. And you immediately, it starts to wear on me because I'm a hap- genuinely, innately a happy person. And, uh, and I couldn't understand what was going on, so it would... It, it it's really like a beaten wife syndrome, you know. You're in an abusive relationship, and then the new guy comes along, and he's so wonderful to you, and she's still, like, timid and shy, like, thinking he's going to hit her at some point. You still expect to get hit. Yeah, you, so I'm expecting that still, you know, and that's and that's just from, that's learned behavior. Well, and that's why, well, the, only, the only beautiful thing that happened was when I started boxing, and I learned how to hit people back and not just sit there and take it. It was the most liberating feeling I'd ever had in my life. Oh, sure. And and that gave me a, a certain confidence to make me go, all right, all right. So this is really more of a facade than it is a reality. Because in there, there's no sort of great decider who yeah. can then say, well, you're good, but not good enough. Yeah. Which is what you sometimes feel is happening in the world. Yeah. And then the problem is now as an adult, you can't just walk around hitting people. <laughs> but, but here's, the, here's what <laughs> as you much as you'd love from to the stage. Well, you can hire a bunch of people to hit if you want to. No, nah, but that takes you, the fun out of it. You're, right. You've got all this talent as far as hitting goes and then you can't hit anybody. But the uh, when you when you think about it, you were you said you were you were happy living that life doing doing stand up. You didn't feel unfairly judged then. No, not at all. Right. So when you weren't that financially and commercially successful, you felt, oh, this is kind of commensurate with my talent. Yeah. Uh, you know what I think it is? Well, the minute you have something you feel you can lose is when you get a little protective over it. Right. And that's what it is. I mean, I feel I have something to lose. And my biggest fear is not so much losing it. My biggest fear is somebody going, ha, told you so. You mean someone, someone, some uh, imaginary saying, ah, person. Right. Sure. Who? Yeah. Who I can't name or or picture even, but some in my head there's somebody out there who's gonna go. I'm waiting. But in your father's like in your father's voice, what mm-hmm. do you think he would think of all this? And you still being worried about what some my dad my dad would have done the same thing. I think my da- the reason my dad my dad here's the thing here's what happened with my dad my dad when he moved to when he moved to Canada first of all my dad's name was Eric Peters right my dad was an English major his English was impeccable. His his vernacular was was broad and vast, and his command of the English language was amazing, and it would always trip people out. And the way he wrote was so eloquent and so detailed and smart and sharp and incisive. Uh, it, it it was it was one of those things where you'd be like, "Wow, this guy's a really good writer." And when he moved to Canada, he wanted to be a journalist. And he went for he sent some he submitted some stuff to the and some newspaper in Canada, and they read it and they were like, "Wow, come on in, we want to meet with you." Eric Peters, they want Eric meet Peters. With you. Sure. He walks in, they immediately looked at him and said, "That position's been filled." Mm. 
And these are the things he didn't want to happen to me. He carried that stuff and would... He carried that and he would try to dissuade me from trying to get too big for my britches, if you will. How would he try to dissuade you with that? Uh, You know, just like, uh, you know, this is not the business for our people. This is not something that we should be doing. This this is for the whites and the blacks. This is not for the Indians. This is not something we get involved in. You know, that's exactly how he talked. Right. Not the stage version of how he talks. Yeah, that's the, the real version. The real talk. version of how he talks. The real version of how my dad talked to be like, son, this is not the business for us. This is not something we should be into. And how would you respond to him? He, for every reason he gave me we sh- I shouldn't be doing it is every reason I said we should be doing it. He said this is for the, the blacks and the Jews and the, and the whites. This is their game. Uh, there's nobody like us in this business. And I go, that's exactly why I should be in this business. Because there's nobody like me. That's exactly why I need to be there. Right. But somehow a father's voice, even when you can mount an argument against it, it lands, right? It sticks and somewhere yeah. inside you. And that, you know, it would always motivate me. And would you- I remember in 1990, I'll tell you a funny story. In 1998, uh, I, had been on, I had two specials already aired in Canada, uh, 95 and 97. I had these two stand-up specials. They were very well received. People started to know who I was a little bit. Uh, but I still was financially not secure, and I was still living at home, and, I, and I, I needed money one day. It was a Monday. And I said, Dad, can I borrow 100 bucks? I get money on Thursday, but I don't have any right now. He goes, didn't you just work this week? And I go, yeah, but I don't get the check until Thursday. I don't think this comedy thing is working out for you. And I'm like, Dad, I, I've got money. I can see the money. I just don't have it. I can, I, it's there Thursday. I just don't have any right now. And he was like... Why don't you get a job during the day? And I'm like, doing, like, what am I going to do during the day, Dad? Really? He goes, what? I go, what am I going to do, work at Burger King? He goes, why? Who, who are you, that you're too bloody good to work at Burger King? People work there every day making an honest living, and you're too bloody good? Who the hell do you think you are? And I go, Dad, I've been on TV. I can't go work at Burger King. What if I'm standing there and some guy walks and goes, oh, my God, Russell Peters, I love your comedy. Can I get the Whopper with cheese combo? You know, <laughs> and I'm like, Dad, I can't do that. Take your bloody ego out of this and just think like a think like a man. And I'm like, I, but I'm not that desperate, Dad. I'm not so concerned with the money. Right. I just and needed of course, gas it's not even money. The words, but some part of that it is, makes me feel like a failure. Him not accepting your dream, yeah, uh, and not accepting that this life is possible for you. Yeah, I still wasn't accepting that this life was possible for me though. Yeah, but so you needed to marshal, like, everything you had to try to convince yourself. That's why I took any gig. There was never, I was never above a gig. Well, that's the George Carlin thing, right? And that was the George Carlin thing, and that was also because... And what happened when you met Carlin? I met Carlin in 92, and I was just geeked out. He was my idol. Sure. And staring at you reminds me of him a little bit. (laughs) Because I have a beard. Yeah. Yeah. A gray beard. It kind of freaks me out. Um, Why is everybody else's stuff in your shit? Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> it was so brilliant. Right and my dad and I would bond over Carlin because we because uh, my dad was, a you know, an English major and he appreciated the wordsmith that Carlin was. And, and I remember buying the book Brain Droppings and my dad and I would just sit there, flip through. You could flip, the, the book is beautiful because you could open it to any page and just read. It wasn't a story. It was just brain droppings. Yeah. No, I love George Carlin too. I, the album, a place, a place for your stuff. I was in high school. That album just destroyed yep. me. Then I went back and got, got all the other albums. I I loved them. But so you met him, and his advice to you was get on stage as much as possible. Um, even if there's a, you're at a bar and there's a band playing, and uh, they take a break, ask if you can do five minutes in between. Just go anywhere you see a microphone. You go and you ask if you can get on that microphone. 
And I was like, are you sure? He goes, I'm 100% sure. That's all you have to do. And you do it? Mm-hmm. How did you have the guts to do that? Because Carlin told me. When your idol tells you something, sure, and he's genuinely your idol, you, you tend to listen. Right. Do you he think, wasn't just some guy. Do you think about that when people come up to you? Do I you tell think him, about that you're that to people? I don't, I don't believe I'm that to anybody. I, I believe people look at me and see me as successful and go, wow, I, I'm, you know, like I have guys like uh, Chappelle will come up to me all the time. Man, I really love the way you just went around the business and that you control what you do. Then I say, thanks. I really would like to be in the movie. <laughs> but when, well, well, like, we'll talk about that one second. But when you are, are a, uh, when you uh, are, are, see a kid who comes up to you, I'm saying, not a peer, but a kid mm-hmm. who wants to do this. I always you, tell kids when they ask me any advice for me, I'm a, I'm a young up and coming comic. I said, don't do this because you think you're going to get rich and famous. Right. Do it for the love. Do it for the love. Do it because when you're not doing it, you dream about doing it. Which is obviously what you were. I still do. Was. I still, when I'm not doing it, I'm like, I really want to get on stage. Right. Well, so what, so the, the, your dad and, and you were having this, this ongoing conversation and it wasn't horribly tense, but it was like a real thing that was going on. Yeah. He would, you know, that. sometimes he came to watch me and he'd be like, you need to expand your repertoire. And, and would that hit you hard? Yeah. Cause it was kind of like my dad said, you're acting sh- uh, what was he so when he couldn't when he couldn't work as uh, a journalist in that way? What what was he doing? He was a writer. He just he just became a a government worker. He became a, a federal meat inspector. And would he write in his spare time? Or he, he would. He would write letters to the editor all the time, and they would always get published because they were written so well. So that was his only sort of way. He had he kind of sacrificed the dream. He sacrificed the dream to make sure the family was fed. Would he tell you guys that he was sacrificing? No, the dream? never once did he ever. Ever, he never once said, I could have been. That's awesome. He never, ever, he just ate it. He just did the thing. He did the thing and he ate it. And then... I love, uh, I love hearing that. That's yeah, and then he would, uh, he became the uh, the editor for this Anglo-Indian newspaper, newsletter. And because we're Anglo-Indians. And uh, Anglo-Indian, the community is so small. Uh, worldwide, I don't think there's even... You'd be lucky to find 10,000 of us. Define Anglo-Indians for people who don't know what that is. Anglo-Indians are products of when the British were in India, and uh, they had encouraged... This is the version my dad told me. Uh, I have a different take on it. My dad gave me the nice version. Yours is the imperialistic version? Or... My dad was the imperialistic version. Mine is the more slave master. Sure. Them, you know? uh, my dad's uh, version was uh, they would encourage the British army officers to marry locally as it was too dangerous for them to try and bring British women to India because the journey on the boat and stuff like that, would, some people would die on the way. So they would be like, listen, why don't you go local? You know, buy local. Right. No, no, no. I'm, yeah, it's imperialistic, <clears throat> in a, but it is, no, clearly. And my, view, right. my yeah. view was always they bred us to be the middleman between the British and the Indians because we would look like the Indians to a certain degree. But we would speak English and we would have English names. No, that, that yeah, that is the sort of like, uh, I mean, when you when, when I say imperialism, I'm, I'm saying it in a, a negative no, way. No, absolutely. Yeah. The idea is that they want, it's their way to gain dominion and, and domination. Absolutely. Uh, is by in, in, intermarrying and change, you know, like literally yeah, changing. changing. Well, even that one, I, I, I don't know the quote exactly, but uh, one of those British soldiers, uh, uh, leaders, uh, generals from back in those days in the 1800s, if or 1700s even, whenever the hell it was, he said, uh, 
the Indian people are the strongest, most beautiful human beings I've ever met in my life. They are so uh, rich in history and culture. We must make them feel inferior. Right. We must break them down. The only way to defeat them is to break them down mentally. And that's what they did. Right. Well, they did a damn good job. Of well, it. yeah, I mean, for a long, for a long, long Now, time. the quote is absolutely not exact, but it is along those lines. Well, luckily, somebody uh, will set us straight. Yeah, somebody uh, will set us straight and like, you idiot, that's not what he said. And I'm like, like, like I was just trying to get the gist of it. But uh, my assistant, Jason DeLeon, who uh, did an incredible job of uh, bringing us together, will figure that out for yes. us. Yes, Jason, uh, the Indian-looking uh, Puerto Rican? No. What are you? No, sir. Dominican. All right, slow down there, Romeo. All right, <laughs> he's uh, he's gonna play us out with some uh, aventura strong, later. Strong, Dominican proud. Do you want me to do you want me to play some bachata right now? Uh, American, <laughs> but um, so your dad got a job as, uh, for the paper, or he was editing the paper, but he did no, it out yeah, of love. No. I mean, he would just yeah, do it was out of love. He it. wasn't getting paid for it. It was like the Anglo Indian. It's called Anglo Indians in Touch. And he was the editor of the newsletter. Some, and he really prided himself on that. So some men in that kind of situation, as you know, would, would then really try to, to stop you from living your dreams. You're saying he, he was scared for you. He didn't want me to not pursue my dreams. He just didn't want me to get hurt the same way he did. So, but he never told us that. He just, you know, you would, you know, through the years of looking back, you just decipher it. You've put it, you mean you would put it, you've put it back together now for yourself. Yeah. Uh, and my mom would kind of tell us after, you know, after my dad passed away, he just he really just didn't want you guys to get hurt. When he didn't want us to feel how he felt, right? Which was hopes and dreams dashed, a promise that he felt the America or Canada mm-hmm. gave you that you could uh, be what you wanted to be, right? But in fact, it wasn't a meritocracy. Yes, and uh, and he and clearly, you know, when a kid says I want to be a comedian, even a kid from sort of uh, a lineage that it would make more obvious sense the parents would still think oh god i really scared for my kid well you know the funny thing about anglo indians as well is that in india we were notorious for being the artists the entertainers the musicians the uh we were we're not professionals anglo indians are always like more we're like the rat pack you know what i mean we would have the house parties and and the cool clothes and the cool music and and uh, the painters and sculptors, and on my dad's side of the family, my, my cousins are sculptors and painters and, and chefs and stuff like that. And, uh, and you know, Engelbert Humperdinck is, is Anglo-Indian. And he's, you know, he's a singer. You know, Cliff oh, Richard. A very stylish singer, Cliff, too. Cliff Richard yeah. is Anglo-Indian. I mean, th- th- these are just historically the things we did. But, but uh, he, here, it was not what you were supposed to do. So you're there. uh and this t- I just want to get back to your me- the, the mental state because it's so fascinating that you were happy in this life, def- like not, not defying your father, but kind of proving that you could do this and work and be- have a couple specials, but not being uh, world famous and not being a wealthy person. And then this video starts to take off. And what starts to happen to you? How does it, how does it occur to you that this is all happening? And what starts to, what's your thought process to sort of make this work for you? Well, um, I think the best way to contrast it is in February of February fifth, February fifteenth, uh, two thousand and four. I played DePaul University in Chicago, and I got paid seven hundred dollars for that gig, and thirteen people came to the show, and I performed my ass off for those thirteen people. 
exactly to the day one month later, my dad passes away. And uh, and it was a it was a bummer, but he was sick, so you know, you kind of it was a relief and and sadness at the same time. You know, you don't want to see your father in pain, and but <clears throat> you know, I'll see you on the other side. How I see it. Um, you cut to a month later. Uh, now it's April, right? And uh, early April, so maybe two weeks later, even. Uh, these girls that I knew from Toronto were living in San Francisco, and they were like, "Hey, we rented this theater out. We think we want to do a comedy show with you there." And I said, "Okay." And they sold it out. It was maybe like three hundred seats, and uh, I had a great show. And they paid me fifteen hundred dollars, I think, in cash. And I slept at their house, like it was like so Mickey Mouse. And then I went to New York. Uh, I was sorry, I went to L.A. after that. And slept on Chris Spencer's couch for a week. Um, and Chris Spencer has also has a very famous couch because Kevin Hart used to sleep on that couch right. too. And probably Mike Epps and probably a bunch of every – I think everybody slept on Chris Spencer's couch. And so you go sleep in Chris Spencer's couch. Do you Are you aware that this YouTube thing is happening? I have no clue yet. So you sleep on his couch and then what happens? Um, you know, people are – he's taking me around and I've got this special burnt onto a DVD – and I'm just handing it to people, and and he's like, "Come on, what are you doing? This looks very unprofessional. It's just like a burnt CD." And I'm like, "Hey, man, here's uh, my my special if you want to see it." And nobody's really taking any notice. Nobody's paying attention. And then I meet uh, this. Uh, I, I do some. Was it 2004? Yeah, l- later, a little, a couple of months later, there's some guy starts some Gurus of Comedy tour. Yeah, great. And I'm headlining it. Uh, and still do you know why headlining it? Does it make sense to you that you were headlining it? I mean, it did because I, I, it made sense in that I was, uh, well, these are all new Indian comics, and I'm the guy who'd been doing it for 15 years. So, sure. yes, I'm the grandfather. Did you story. notice that the audience was starting to know your bits? Yeah, I, I, I was like, wait a minute. They, people are coming up to me going, oh, my God, I love your stuff. I'm like, how do you know my stuff? I've never been, we've watched you so many times. They, they would say stuff like, you know, people don't know. They'd be like, I watched your HBO special. I'm like, I never had an HBO special. Right. They don't know. They yeah. just know they saw this thing of you doing yeah. it. And I'm like, wow. I was, and I'm, you know, I'm calling my brother. I'm like, have I been on TV in the States? This is weird because I'm in America where I've always wanted to be. And uh, people know who I am. I'm, I'm very confused by this. But it's only Indian people at this point. And, uh. You know, and then I meet with this guy, Deepak, uh, I guess his name, whatever his name was. He produced uh, Bend It Like Beckham or something. I think he's an executive producer on it or something like that. And uh, he wants to give me <clears> – <throat> I'm trying to get a work permit to work in the States and live there. Yeah. And he was offering me this deal where he would get me a work permit and I could live in his guest house and he would get 50% of anything I did. And I almost agreed to this deal for seven years. Yeah, seven years personal service contract in California. But you, at that time, didn't realize you would become famous. Yeah, I had no clue. You were famous, and you didn't know you were famous? Yeah, I had no clue. You were, like, living that Jim Carrey movie? Yeah. Where the whole, like, people are watching you, and you don't realize you're being watched. Yeah, exactly. Truman. Yeah, you're living Truman Show. Yeah, and I'm like, this deal deal seems really shit. And he was going to pay me, like, $2,000 a month. (laughs) <laughs> and and well, hey man, look, you know you can make that twenty four grand for the year. So, yeah. so what what then tripped it up? What then let you know? I was just like, this deal seems just something. Something was like, it didn't add up. I was like, this deal seems. I'm like, I do not like this deal one single bit. 
I don't like it. Like, who owns you for seven years and right. 50% of so you say all no. future earnings? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I say, no, nah, I can't do that, buddy. And then you cut to uh, uh, October, November, November of 2004. I go back to Chicago, the same place I was in February yeah. with 13 people and $700. And some promoters brought me out there, and I'm getting like 30 grand for this weekend of sold out shows all over Chicago. It was either thirty or twenty five thousand, whatever it was. Right, and you walk I mean, on stage, ton of money, and you walk on stage, and and they... people lose their, and I'm like, what the hell? What did it feel like inside? Inside, it, I was yeah, like, what did it feel I, like? I really felt like my dad was like, huh? How do you like this? You really did. You really I genuinely felt like that. It felt like my dad was like going, huh? I may not have been able to help you out there, but I can help you from this side. Right after Russell said that great thing. Which, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it was, Russell, the studio crashed. So we're actually now about to finish our conversation from, uh, Russell, wh where are you right now? I'm driving up Malibu Canyon. Great. I'm in the freezing cold in New York, and um, it's a couple of weeks later. So um, we'll, we'll get right back to where we were in the conversation, but I want to ask you, we were, it was the day before you played Madison Square Garden, man, so how was the show? What did it feel like to walk out onto that stage? show was uh was pretty good i you know i didn't get to the venue as early as i would like to have um but you know i really absorbed the garden right and then every every old school rapper that i ever listened to <laughs> was already backstage hanging out yeah <clears throat> so i was caught up in that moment of being a fan and also having to go and perform <laughs> So, you know, it all happened very quickly. And then when I got out on stage, I mean, the audience wouldn't have known, but and neither did my people, but I knew that I wasn't quite in my head yet. I understand that. How long so did it take you? So there was, how long did it take you to like be like, ah, I'm on stage here. I'm doing my act. I'm in Madison Square Garden. It took me quite a while to, to settle in, you know? Yeah. And then did you feel like you got your rhythm? Uh, did Could you see, uh, did you take it in the idea that you were there, you were actually in Madison Square Garden? No, immediately I, I, I accepted that I'm in Madison Square Garden. There was a little bit of wow factor in my head. But then once you start going into your set, having done four arena tours already, of course. It, it just felt like, started to feel like another arena to me. That's good. That, like, that's when I started to, that's when I started to, you know, fall back in my uh, comfort zone. Right, because that lets you then just do your thing and not have to kind of worry about the fact, oh, this is a big moment. Just, like, play your act, connect with your people, and move on to the next show. Right, right. Well, so, so to speak. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. Or, not, not, not as cavalier, but yeah. So uh, no, but I'm, I'm saying getting, trying to get yourself in that place where you can, like, um, not be, you know, swallowed up by the, by the bigness of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you can't get caught up in the moment. Uh, you know, that's like, I always equate everything to boxing. It's like hitting a guy with a right hand, his knees buckle, and instead of following up with a left hook, you you stand back and watch him just buckle. You're like, no, hit him again. Right. You Make sure he goes to sleep. Right. That makes sense. you got to be in there killing. So the last thing that you said before the, the whole system crashed, which was actually a great thing, was... You talked about the moment you got on just connects to all this. You got on stage in front of 30,000 people in Chicago, um, you know, when your thing started exploding. And you said you had this sense that your father said, um, I couldn't help you 
from this side, but I can help you. You know, I, I couldn't help you from there, but I can help you now from this side, meaning from being gone. Yeah. And right. Uh, and you still feel kind of that connection to him in 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 a way as you're doing your thing, right? Absolutely, all the time. <clears throat> uh, I think it's just what keeps me grounded and and uh, and gives me some sort of. Uh, Maybe I'm hanging on to the memory of my father or what have you, but uh, I use that as my connection, and I and I genuinely feel like I feel his presence, so to speak, um, when when I talk to him. And but but do you think? Because I was listening back to our interview, and 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 I have notes on what we said that got destroyed. And one of the things that you had said was you talked about the fact that you know places like the New York Times, you don't feel like they write about you really. Yeah, they don't care. And you were talking about how, um, how you know, the late-night shows, other than your friends with Kimmel or no Kimmel, how, how you come in through town and the late-night shows don't invite you on. That's... Yeah, they're not even interested. It's not even like, ah, uh, we'd love to have them, but it's just like, no thanks. Nah. <laughs> and, and, which is, yeah, crazy. I'm, I'm kind of at this point now where it makes me laugh. I'm just like, I... I don't even want them to say yes anymore because it's like, eh, if you say yes, it's going to make me uh, not the underdog anymore. Right. Well, no, that's great. That's a sort of uh, a good because a good attitude about it. Even though I, I, you know, seeing you here when we were talking, I know it. It part of it uh, bugs you. And you, you said this thing about even how the networks. You know, you said you walk in there and like, the security guards know who you are. And the receptionists know who you are, right? And then what happens when you sit down with the executives of the network? <clears throat> well, they probably, I mean, they can't really, I don't know how, if they cut a hole in their stomach so when their head is all the way up there, they can look out and see. But <laughs> they just don't, they, you know, they don't have a clue. They're not tastemakers. No. And they're, you, uh, yeah. they're, they're trend followers. Yeah, you said sometimes you'll walk in and, like, everybody in the building basically not only knew who you were, they're throwing quotes at you from your best bits, and then you'll sit down and the network execs will look at you and they'll say, so tell us about yourself, Russell. Yeah, what are you up to? What do you, you know, I literally had one lady just say, so what do you do? I'm like, what do I do? What the f*** do you do? (laughs) (laughs) How did you get that job? Yeah, well, you should spend it on them. But listening back to the stuff you were talking about about your father and about Anglo-Indians and about being in, in ha- your dad not really being able to, to do these things that he'd sort of dreamed of. I just wonder, I wonder of how much of you wanting this kind of like um, recognition from the people who are considered like the traditional tastemakers has to do with your dad being shut out in that way and always telling you that this kind of acceptance was unrealistic. Well, you know, you know, funny enough, you should uh, say that I, I had never thought of it like that until you said those words just now. And I went, oh, my God, that's exactly probably what it is. <laughs> yeah. I do, wanna, I do want that acceptance just, you know, for my own father's memory to be like, see, Dad, we can do this. Yeah, that's the strong sense that I got. And I got, like, that the, a, a way towards you because, uh, like, a, a way towards you accepting your... your like being happy about yours because that you know each time that I would I would press you and it's interesting I never have done this where I've done an interview and then gone back and listened to talk more uh, but it seems like the the getting uh, to a certain place but then each at each step having people uh, 
well, but these people have to think I'm cool enough, and those people need to think I'm good enough. And I, you know, because we talked about Chef and how you and John Favreau are 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 buddies, and he and how you ended up in his movie, right? Right. And uh, and and I think to me that's about as cool a thing as could happen. But you do that, and then it seems like it seems like that is the exact kind of thing that you would have sat around and said, "How come no one's asking me to be in cool independent movies?" And then you check that off, and it's like, "All right, but how come not, I'm not getting asked to be in the big movies?" And 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 that if you could, you're it almost feels like you're robbing yourself of a sense of joy and a sense of peace about this stuff. Well, there's that. I mean, you could look at it that way, or there's also. I don't want to pat myself on the back too early either. You know what I mean? It's, there's nothing worse than, uh, I mean, I, I feel like there's more. And I feel like I've got so much more to offer that uh, I can't just settle into where I'm at. It's kind of like winning you know, the NFB title and uh, the, the IBO title. Yes. Or local titles that don't really mean anything until you win, like, you know, the WBA or the WBC or the IBS titles, where you're like, these are the world titles. The other ones are titles, yes, but these are the ones that matter. Well, yeah, the next time that you and I meet, and not on a podcast where people won't care, we can talk about which of those organizations was the most corrupt and how none of those titles really mean very much because from... Oh, I agree with you. It's kind of like wanting to win the ring title, you yeah. know, the ring magazine, yeah. writer of the year award. Yeah, there. Because, you know, if you remember, like, I'm sure you are one of the few people who remember Jose Suleiman and all of those crooked oh, yeah. guys. You could just feel oh, like... He the, yeah, he was the most corrupt. Yeah, they were all, all those guys... We're incredibly corrupt, but I love that you just said the thing about you don't want to pat yourself on the back too soon because you said that um, when young comedians come up to you and they're like, hey, man, look at my YouTube. I'm, it's so good. I had such a great set. You say the first thing you always say to them is like, never pat yourself on the back like that. Yeah. And you don't want to do yeah, it. you did it. Yeah. You don't want to do it to yourself it's either. Like a, yeah, it's like a doctor bragging about being a doctor, but unless you've cured cancer, I'm not impressed that you're a doctor. That's good. Right. That makes total sense. And um, I, I, I mean, I think it makes sense, and I understand why you need to do it to push yourself forward. You know, I guess I'm always looking for ways to um, – I wish there was a way that someone could stay ambitious, keep wanting to kill it, but at the same time, like, that you didn't have to beat yourself up so much to do it. You, you, know, you know what I mean? That you could somehow keep moving forward and trying to get better and trying to be bigger without – having to feel like you have to manufacture so much kind of anger to, to drive it? Well, I think comedians by nature or most artists by nature are, are somewhat tortured individuals. Yeah. And if the torturing stops, we feel like it stifles our creativity. So we might even uh, subconsciously torture ourselves to a certain degree in order to facilitate our creativity. Well, yeah, I get that. I, I, I think that that is what people tell themselves, and, and, and only you know what you need to do to make your, your process work. You know, I, I know that your brother became very important in your life. You realized that your representation wasn't great, and you brought your brother in, and your brother's really smart business-wise and helped you figure out how to take over the touring and how to really do this thing in a way that made you guys as incredibly successful as you are, um, you know, making you know tens upon tens upon tens of millions of dollars. But I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, when you tell that story about leaving home and you and your brother and saying, let's go get our own place, do you think that this would make, you know, does it make your mom happy to know that the two of you are working together, that, that you reached out and took care of your brother oh, yeah. and, and then that your brother's taking care of you in this way? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how could your mom not be happy about that? You know what I mean? And then I also, again, not to get on that spiritual tip again, but I, I honestly feel like, you know, my dad's on the other side. He could have made this happen for one of us three, whether it be my mom, myself, or my brother. And he gave it to me because I'm the most, uh, I, I guess, if he gave it to my brother, see, my brother had all the success all of a sudden and made all this money. It would have been very. My brother's a little bit more selfish than I am. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what? You think that's part of what makes him such he's a good not, businessman? He's not, he's not a very giving person. He wouldn't be sharing his situation with other people. And then if he gave it to my mom, my mom's too giving and would have given the whole thing away. So I'm somewhere in the middle there, you know, where I share it and I keep it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I get it. You you brought your brother in, but you've you've and obviously you've looked after your mom. But you're saying you're not going to be uh, a super dick about it, and you're not going to be an irresponsible person with it either. Right. And hey, Russell, yeah. what is? And, 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 you know, and I and I strongly remember what it's like to to want and need things in life, and I remember what struggle is, and I remember and I constantly remind myself of that on a daily basis. How? How do you remind yourself? Well, you know, when I go out and I see people a little bit less fortunate, and then I I somehow in my head uh, juxtapose myself against uh, where was I at this type of stage in my life, and, and then I kind of weigh it as, are they worse off than me? Are they better off than I would have been? And then I kind of gauge my assistance on that, you know? That. That's deep. That's a deep and interesting thing to do, um, and I'm sure that that helps trigger a lot of empathy all the time for what's going on um, as you relate to people, and probably keeps you from going on a cra- like a full-on star trip all the time. Oh yeah, no, I, I don't ever star trip on people. I don't. I don't have time for that. It it, it irritates me. You know, as a fan of people, uh, when I meet them and I get that kind of starish attitude from them, I. I get thoroughly irritated by it because I'm like, first of all, we're in the same business. Second of all, if you're going to treat me like that, how are you going to treat somebody else? You're going to treat somebody else. I mean, like, you should just treat everybody the same way. It doesn't, you shouldn't have to be like, oh, that guy's somebody. Let me talk to him a different way. Oh, this person, this one. Let me, you know, I, I literally talk to the, to the valet the same way I'll talk to the head of a network. Although, yeah, you might tell the valet not to scratch your car. But, um... Uh, and I would also tell the head of a network not to I was going to say maybe tell the head of the network not to steal your ideas. But um, so it is slightly different. But uh, just to wrap this up, um, when was the first time that somebody, when, when you had that realization that these people know my routines? Like, do you remember the first time that you were there about to say a punchline or about to go into a thing or walking down the street when someone shouted, someone's going to get hurt? Like, did that... Uh, when when did that hap- start to happen? From like the time you recorded that special, I would say about a year after I recorded it is when it started to uh, start to appear out there in the ether. And and did you do you remember the first time that people like how, when when you realized they know all my jokes? Yeah, I think it was when I went back to Chicago in November of two thousand and four, and people were quoting my act to me, and I'm like, oh. Sh- I need a new act. <laughs> <laughs> and then just for people who are like in the in that point of their career where they're struggling, and that was like a year 
that was like one year from when you were playing to 13 people in Chicago, right? About a year later? Yeah, not even. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was about 10 months later. Right. A lifetime of work, a lifetime of uh, diligence and dedication, um, frustration along the way, little bursts of success, more frustration, and then bang, um, all of it all of it came together for you. And you've kept it going now for more than 10 years, right? Well, I really feel that uh, someday soon, Russell, uh, you'll even get on a late-night television show. You know, I really just want to film Letterman before he goes away. <laughs> that, so that's it. I think we have to make a campaign. We have to start a campaign. When this podcast goes up next week, I think uh, yeah. or the, the week after or next week when this podcast goes up, I think we should start a Twitter campaign to get you on Letterman, man. You should be on that show. You are, you know. Yeah, but not. But not doing stand-up. They had offered it to me once to do stand-up, and and they gave me all these rules. And I'm like, you know what my act is like, right? Every rule they gave me was against what my act is. It's like, uh, no racial jokes, no this jokes, no storytelling. I'm like, everything I am, you said no to. How, why would you even offer me this? Well, I think what you need is them to offer you to do your stand-up comedy for five minutes and then go say hi to Dave. And sit down with Dave. Yeah, or just give me a panel, and, and I can pound it out right there. Let, all right, Russell Peters on the David Letterman Show. That's a great note on which to leave this thing. Hit me up when you come through town, <laughs> Russell. Great to talk to you, man. Hey, you know what? You have my number. You call me when you come to L.A. as well. I sure will. Uh, I'll do it for sure, 100%. Hey, do you want to tell people where you're going to be in 2015 around the world so they can come see you? I know you're playing some huge shows. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, first week of uh, January, I'm in Irvine. Second week, Florida. Third week, Texas. And then after that, South Africa, India, Sri Lanka, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia. Wow. It's, that's, I mean, that is truly, uh, there it is. I mean, there's nothing I can say on top of that. Russell, go to RussellPeters.com to uh, check that stuff out. Follow Russell on Twitter. I am at Brian Koppelman at Twitter. Russell, thanks, man. Drive safely the rest of the way home. Thanks, buddy. Basically, if you're missing a plane, I'll be in that country. (laughs) There you go. Take care. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.